Welcome to the official Man City podcast. In this episode, I met up with Joe Royal and Andy Morrison to discuss the back-to-back promotion seasons in 1999 and 2000. The story starts at a time of great upheaval for City. Joe came in towards the end of the 97-98 season, the third permanent manager we'd had in 16 turbulent months, and couldn't save us from relegation as we slipped to our lowest position in the club's history. And Manchester City, twice league champions, are going down into Division 2. But Joe rescued this wonderful football club and returned us to the top flight two seasons later. It was a remarkable period and one I'll never forget. Wembley in 99 was an obvious highlight for everyone. Deafening sound, Guy Butters must score, he doesn't! And Manchester City are back in the first division. But the game at Blackburn in 2000 remains my favourite away day of all time. And four years and two days after they played their last Premiership match, Manchester City are back there. They're back in the promised land. The signing of Andy was key, both on and off the field, so I wanted to get them both back together to talk it all through. This recording is one part of a much longer stretch of conversation around Joe's dining room table. So, let's hear what the lads have got to say. I think the main problem was that uh, the three managers, the three permanent managers, were all board players, but hadn't been in the seat long enough then to to get rid of anybody, you know. So we ended up with an over over heavy staff of over 50 pros um, and talk about can't see the wood from the trees um, and, and the wage bill goes with it. So my first season really, uh, obviously, we brought in to try and stay up. I think I, I think I had 12 games at the end of the season when we were bottom, but we nearly got out of it last, last game of the season when we, we won at Stoke and in typical City fashion. Every other result went against us, so we went down. But then it, it was a, a summer of clear-outs. And, and we started the following season with a team full of kids, really. You know, obviously, two Whitleys about us, a young kid in goal, Nicky Weaver, went on to be great, two Fentons. And we, we were young and raw, and it was really the the residue of the players, the senior players who, who hadn't been sorted out or sold off or released... And it was an awkward time and it was an awkward start for us. Everybody wanted to come to Main Road. Clubs, actually, the, the anomaly of one or two clubs had more away fans at Main Road than they had for home games because people were coming on coaches to have a night out in Manchester with the family and, and come to Main Road. And, and it was making it very difficult for us, you know. But, you know, that that's where the big fella came in and... I know it's uh, it's all had the story. I was having a, a meeting with the staff, and um, the great blue man Les Chapman came into the room and and said, without asking anyone, they just joined in and said, "Just thought I'd tell you, Jockey's been they're letting him go at Huddersfield, and Jockey, of course, is the Jockey. He'll never be, by the way, but <laughs> <laughs> he'll uh, the, the big man was on his way out to Huddersfield, and the word leader, you know, I knew he could play." but I knew could lead as well. For this podcast today, I've been speaking to a few people, and one of the stories that kept coming up was that one of the first decisions you made was that King Cladsey would have to go if City were to rebalance the side and, and get themselves out of problems. Firstly, is that true? And secondly, what was it about King Cladsey's style that you just didn't think lended itself, perhaps, to the position City were in? The first thing is that we couldn't afford him. Financially, we couldn't afford him. And he knew of Ajax's interest, um, 
and he'd been player of the year two years running in a relegated team. So, you know, it wasn't like a Matt Letizia situation where his goals had kept Southampton up year after year. And listen, Gio was an amazing talent, really an amazing talent. But talent alone doesn't make you a great player. And sometimes away from home, you couldn't always find him readily, you know. So City do get relegated that season, unfortunately. I think they, they, it's generally accepted if you'd been brought in a little bit earlier, perhaps City would have stayed up. Um, but then the start to the following season isn't isn't great either, is it? There's sort of some patchy results there. Well, it, it was patchy. We we were in and out. We were a patchy team. You know, we were a patched up team. You know, a, a lot of the the senior players had gone. I think. I remember sitting in a boardroom on deadline day and I think we got 12, maybe 13 players out either completely or on loan. And that was seen as instrumental to the club staying um, insolvency, not into insolvency, but staying solvent. So, um, you know, we we were left, as I said, with with a younger side Um, and it was an in and out start. I think we'd be Blackpool first game of the season. And then afterwards, there, there were some patchy results and losing at Wickham and losing at York, and the chance had started. We're not really here. We're not, and you still hear it now, and it's, it still makes me smile. Andy, what are your memories then of, of your move? So, how did you first hear about the interest? And, and you, you were keen to go there, weren't you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, the manager Peter Jackson <clears throat> had said to me that um, uh, Manchester City had, had inquired whether I was available to come in on loan, and at that time he had said no. And then, um, you know, there was a falling out with the manager over, over a certain incident. Um, you know, I, I thought he'd done something disrespectful and I confronted him on it and probably left him in a position where, you know, there was no way I could stay. So I think they contacted the club and said, you know, he's free to go across. And I went across that afternoon, drove over and, uh, and, and met up with the club and same, exactly the same day as Michael Branch came in. Yeah, I remember talking to you about this before and you said that the press conference was interesting because all the focus was on Michael Branch and you were kind of a secondary story and obviously time has, you've, you've now gone down as like a, a legend at Manchester City and perhaps Michael Branch hasn't. So what, what are your memories of that press conference? Well, it was exactly that. I mean, there was um, probably 12 from different areas, um, different reporters and television or whatever and and um, I don't know whether they thought I was in security or something, <laughs> but uh, I just sat over in the corner and, uh, and they were all talking to Michael because, you know, he was the next big, big thing to come out of um, Everton at the time. And um, and then at the end, a couple came over and of course and asked me a few questions and all that. And, you know, and then the game comes Saturday and I scored on my debut. So um, it was a great start. Joe, did you know, hand on heart, what a, what an impact Andy would have? You never know with any transfer. You only know the people and what they do. I'd remember him playing in midfield against Oldham for Plymouth when he was swarming all over us, coming in the far post and winning headers. And I remember him thinking then, you know, hey, by the way, if you ever get the chance, um, we had an inside with, with Les Chapman at, at Huddersfield and he knew he was still very close to Huddersfield. He was living that side of the Pennines anyway. So... It always helps if you know something about people. And Les only spoke well of the big fella. What was it Andy brought, do you think? I mean, I've spoken to some of the players and I've got their view, but what, what, what impact? I mean, obviously, great player. And that's the thing I think can sometimes get lost with Andy. Obviously, he was yeah. a big, strong defender, but yeah. he could play as well. 
But in terms of the dressing room and pulling things together, what, what was it, do you think? You're dead right about the playing side. I mean, I said to him that, you know, he really should have had 50 caps for Scotland. You know, he will tell you himself and quite unashamedly that he didn't always present himself as a player as well as he should have done. And, and But he should have had 50. Scotland now, I look at Scotland's team now, and my God, if he, if he ever gets fit and, and pair of new knees. <laughs> I mean, that was always going to be a problem. We, we knew when we took him that his knees weren't great, but he had... He had a charisma on the pitch. He had a presence. He was a leader. And, and I say again, we were young, you know, and you, you had a leader in the dressing room. And you felt all of a sudden that we weren't going to get bullied anywhere, despite being young. And I don't mean physically bullied. I don't mean he was there as a bouncer or anything like that. But I, I meant that on the pitch, no one was going to take liberties with us. And, and that's exactly what he did. And the fact he could play, I mean, he scored a wonderful volley of Oldham in his second game. Yeah, I remember that. He, he scored, a, he wrote his mate off in the first game on his debut, you know, with a thunderous uh, tackle, block tackle, and, and the, the lad never played for months. So, you know, he, he made a big entrance, which made him the, the, the legend that he is with City fans today. And... Rightly so. Andy, you found a quiet dressing room, didn't you, when, when you came? So what initiatives, you know, what, what kind of things can you do in that situation to try and pull things together and try and get a bit of camaraderie going? Because if you speak to any player from that squad now, the first thing they mention is the team spirit that, that, that we had. Um, so what kind of, you know, how did you do that? I don't, I don't think you can come in with any preconceived plans of, of being a certain way. I just think you just have to be yourself. And be the person you are. You know, uh, I remember the first training session when I walked into the changing room and, and Kevin Horlock, um, Kev said, <laughs> Kev said, has it really got that bad that we brought him in? <laughs> you know, and it was tongue in cheek. There was characters in that changing room. There were strong characters. There was your Paul Dickoffs, people with that, you know, Jared Vikens. Um, there was good. There was good young lads that were in there, you know, that had come through the club. Richard Edgel, who had a real um, connection with the club. So... I've often said many times, I just think maybe I was just a piece of the jigsaw that was missing. And then when I come in, as, as the gaff has just said there, um, you know, I, the change room changed in the sense that there was no negativity. And that came, I think, from the way Willie Donaghy spoke to me, you know, about the change room and the impression that you, 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 you can make. And, um, and there was nothing negative. You know, it became very positive very quickly. And, um, you know, the, the, as a manager now, you don't know what's been said in a changing room and you hope your senior players take care of all the, the negative things and the why are we doing this or why are we doing that. The, the senior players take care of that and and I just feel straight away that was accepted then that, you know, we're we're in this together now. We're gonna to have to, you know, batten down and have a fight. And and as as has already been just said there, you know, stood in the tunnel with the players and with me at the front or even when I first came in wasn't, the opposition are not going to take advantage. They're not going to try and bully us whether that's reputation or whether that's presence or whatever, that's that's something that I, I could bring because I feared nothing and feared no one. And it didn't matter who you're coming up against, you know, if you if you turn it into a battle, then, you know, we're, we're going to stand up to that. And, and then, you know, as I say, the, 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 the performances and, and the results come on the back of that togetherness and, and it just grew from there. And, um, you know, and again, if it had been another month in the season, we would have gone up automatically, but we just kind of run out of time and went into the playoffs. You mentioned Willie Donaghy there. You've spoken to me about him before. You felt he was a coach who was very much ahead of his time. The, the way Willie saw life, not necessarily the game, but the way he looked at um, you as a person and the way he saw 
the bigger picture rather than just football, football and that, you know, and I think Willie believed that, um, you know, if you're doing the right things as a person, a human being, then you'll carry them qualities into your football and then the um, the results will come on the back of that, you know, and Willie played a massive part in my, in, in my life um, and obviously the manager did as well because, you know, I was an active drinker up until the age of 28 and um, and then I I had my last drink on um, February the eighteenth, ninety eight. That was the last drink of alcohol I had. And obviously, my time had come where I'd had enough. But you know, they played a part in that because um, I'd uh, gone AWOL again, as I'd done out throughout my career. And you know, when I when I sat in with the manager and he never took the stick. You know, he, he spoke to me as a human being about what I could achieve and what I could do in my life. And, you know, what about you? Not about us. What about you doing something in your life and turn your life around? And that moment there was kind of like a eureka moment where it was, yeah, you know, what about me? And um, and I knew what I had to do. And I left that meeting and, uh, and um, you know, I went to seek the help that I needed that time. And, you know, we're 18 years down the line and I've not, um, not had a drink since. So had a massive bearing on my life as well, you know, so... People talk about what I, impact I had at City, but the, the impact City and the people there had on my life, it was insurmountable. Brilliant. Um, so it is, It's inspirational because he's, it's a hard thing to do when, you know, I, I do remember saying to him that you, you can't let people with less talent talk about you the way that they do because you should let your football be talked about, not not your outfit. And he, he, he'd, he'd been up in Scotland, hadn't you, that weekend? Yeah. And I knew he'd been away and he came in, tail between his legs. And there was no need for that, really. We spoke as adults. It was, God, no one's going to bully him, really. Anyway. So, but that was a difference for me. Yeah. It wasn't the bullying. It wasn't you're this, you're that. You know, you're a waste of that. We're going to hammer you. It was the human element of speaking to somebody and saying, you know, you, you deserve better than this. You know, with what you've got, you've so underachieved, which I understand that. Kenny Dalgleish said the same to me last summer when I was in La Manga with him in Spain. You know, he said, people forget just what a talented lad you were at 22, 23 when you came in. But I blew it because of my off-field antics, you know. And, um, and that's quite a hard thing to take at times, to, to accept that, that, you know. But, you know, with, with my book that I read, I think there's a lot of stuff in there which will say that talent-wise, I underachieved. But my life and the adversity that I had in my life, I massively overachieved, I think. So, it's, so there's a balancing act between the two because, you know, there's... The fact that I was still around at 28 and not in the mortuary is a is a result, you know, and that's how I look at it because you know the the things that happened in my life leading up to them points um, could have been catastrophic. So when Joe and Willie take that approach with you and make it about you and um, and try and focus on you, is do you, do you think that was the first time in your career somebody had really approached it in that way? Yeah, again, this is something that I'm seeing now as a manager myself. Other people had spoke to me probably in a similar way, but I wasn't ready. And, you know, um, and I think when the, when the man himself decides or that feeling that, you know, enough is enough, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, then if the right instruction comes along, then it'll happen. But as a 24-year-old and a 26-year-old, I was never ready to hear them things. Um, and I'm sure with Sam and Sam Allardyce and Brian Horton, I'm sure they tried in their ways, but, you know, it wasn't. And I know without going off on a spiritual path, it is, you know, pain is the, is the touchstone of spiritual growth. You move your life when the pain's that bad. And the pain was never enough until I'd reached that point where I'd had four days in, 
in Scotland and um, I should have been in on a Monday and I missed the Monday and I remember Roy Bailey ringing me and saying, you know, you're in trouble. And I said, you know, it was like, you don't know how much trouble I'm in. You know, that's what my mind was. And then I came in and obviously I met with the, the manager and um, and I left that office that day and went straight away and done what I needed to do, which had been planted in my mind years and years before what I needed to do, but I was never ready. And, um, and the timing was right and, you know, and again, it, that was the start of a very successful period for me. Unfortunately, again, adversity, my knees went, you know, so I never really had that. Maybe those two or three years at 31, 32, 33, where you could have been at the top of your career. I never had that. I, I retired just like before my thir 31st birthday. Um, so hard luck story, but, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. So we're going back to the season in uh, Division 2. We lost to Preston, Lincoln and Reading in the space of four games. You come in. Um, scoring those in your first two games, Colchester and Oldham. Then we lose our way a little bit again. Um, Wickham, three draws, and then we lose to York, which is now held up as the club's... Yeah, and the club's absolute lowest point. That was December the 19th, and City found themselves 12th in the table. Then a win at Wrexham on Boxing Day. Frozen pitch. And that's it. And a lucky win as well. Mm. I think Jared Viking scored. He did, yeah, got the winner, yeah. I think, and it was a... Dare I say poxy? It was a very, very lucky goal, you know, to say the least. I'm sure it hit Jared, who was, a, by the way, a lovely guy and an experienced man. You know, he he was a great servant for us. And then after that, we we brought Terry Cook in, um, which gave us a little bit more balance as a side. You know, we'd be playing with a midfield player wide, and uh, and we went on a long run. It was certainly over 20 games. You know, but that, that that York game, the Wickham game, I remember coming in after the game, and and they don't have a dressing room there. It's a corridor. It's they sort of came in, and we're all squeezed into it with the the knees, and the players could have only been three feet apart from looking at the opposite opposite side of the benches. And I'm I was never really a, a shouter, a screamer, a, a cup thrower, or anything like that. But the time had come; we had to have words. And uh, I, I do remember I waited for everybody in and I got the staff all around me at the end of the room and as they've all come in, I've slammed the door. And as I'm just going to start, the door fell off its hinges. And Ace is like, <coughs> Roy Bailey, Willie. I said, sorry, we'll see you tomorrow, you know. And, uh, there was no time after that, you know. So, but we, we did, you know, the, we hadn't always been lucky. You know, we there were many times I'd, I referred to Cityitis, and uh, you know, but we, we turned from then onwards. Were there any um, was there any talk of you possibly being under pressure at that point, or we, did you know you had a, at least until the end of the season to give this a good crack? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. You, you, you would have to ask David Bernstein. Um, or another member of the board at the time, I honestly don't know. Um, I think in my favour was they probably couldn't afford to sack me. Not that I was earning, I was probably the lowest paid city manager of an era at the time, that's for sure, because they, they couldn't afford to pay me ridiculous wages. So I never felt that because it, it was just never mentioned to me, it really wasn't. And we started the run at the right time. If you if you want to start with a, a new brush and clean and sweep clean, you know, Boxing Day is a good start. City lose 
two games between then and the playoff final. But that momentum and, and what was going on on the pitch, where did that come from? I mean, it's interesting Joe mentions Terry Cook because I sometimes feel he gets forgotten actually a little bit. You know, it's yourself, Gota, Dickoff, people like that. But Terry Cook really did bring something, didn't he? But what, what do you feel sort of, what was the switch that was flicked there? Um, I think momentum plays a huge part in football. Um, you get on a run and, you know, I've seen it myself now in the job. Um, things just go your way. Little things fall for you that hadn't fallen for you before. Of course, that's a byproduct of doing so many things right, training right, preparation right. Um, you know, the in-depth analysis that we did on opposition, even at that stage. You know, Willie Donaghy always based his training sessions in the week geared towards the team we were playing. And we do things that would, you know, perhaps... Um, key points in the opposition that were vulnerable, we'd work on that during the week, which I'd never done before. That's no disrespect to anybody that I'd worked with. It was just that it wasn't to the detail that Willie did it. So, you know, the, the winning become a byproduct of doing so many things with momentum and spirit and the togetherness, um, you know, and things just grew from there. And it was, you know, I don't know what comes first, whether it's the results that create that moment, you know, that um, spirit or the spirit and the strength creates the results. But we got on a fantastic run and yeah. um, we were very hard to beat and you know the fans bought into it all of a sudden you know we'd gone from sort of 26 27 to sold out every week and um and it was you know and as you said earlier on you know the, with the fans you know I go to games now and I speak about that period and immediately whoever I'm speaking to smiles there's a glow in their face and a big smile on their face because and, and it's it's surreal because you look at where we are now competing at the very top signing the best players in the world and probably you know the the fastest growing club in world football and the fans smile about that period in their life because of the adversity and the yeah. the togetherness and the spirit that created throughout the from the players to the, I think I think the fans just realized that you know this bunch of players are the ones that are going to maybe get us back where we should be you know and and embraced it rather than knocked it and you know, it's often it's often said. I hear it said, like you know, you might have to beep it out. But you know, do you remember? You know, when we were shit, yeah. and I always say, "Why well, back to back promotions?" I never had a bad time at City. Yeah. I had a fantastic period. I think I be... think you grew as a, a person at City, though. I think that you and the City fans was a marriage. All of a sudden, they had someone they knew that would do what they wanted to do. You know, for God's sake, they wanted to be out there and get stuck in, and it didn't matter if it was raining, if it was mud or anything. You were there for them, and they felt that. And and it, it was the start of a. I'm not being corny. It's a marriage that's still there today. You say that fans stop you and talk to you. You might have been a better teams at the time. You certainly with Blackburn, you were a better team than City, but you were never more loved than you were at Main Road. Yeah. Tell me about when you were made captain and you saw those fans outside. I think that's mentioned in your book. It's a nice story. What what happened there? What were the details of that? Well, the manager pulled me in and, and, and said, you know, that maybe looking in a different direction and, you know, would would you be interested in that? And with what happened at me at um, Huddersfield, you know, I said, can I speak to Jamie Pollock first? And I rang Jamie in the afternoon and said, you know, the situation and all that. And Jamie was fine with it. Um, said great, yep. He said, you know, you've made an impact, and I'll go and lead them on. Like so, um, it was announced then on the Friday that um, I was now the captain of the club going forward. And then we arrived on the Saturday for the home game. And um, because it's, it's again, it's staggering when you think we parked up in the Kipax and walked through, world. walked through the fans. <laughs> you know, they get flown in helicopters <laughs> nowadays. And, uh, and I got out of the car, and me, my wife and my my son got out. You know, and he was probably three at the time. 
and I just get my boots out and five or six lads have walked over towards the car like you know and they've donkey jackets and boots on and all that all big lads and one of them would say you know one of them said to me Andy Morrison in it and I said, of course they do that but yeah. and I said yeah and he said they just be made captain haven't you and I said yeah and uh, he said well make sure you get it sorted out like you know <laughs> and I said yeah of course I will like you know there's nothing else to say to that really but I could see what it meant to them at the time mm-hmm. you know this is their football club you know they've been ridiculed because of where they are and um, those across the 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 um the city are just ripping it up year on year, but it's their football club, you know, and um, and I could see that they, what it meant to them, and um, and it wasn't one of their moments that have a massive impact, but it was an appreciation really of of where we were and the responsibility and the really the the honour that I had to be given that you know the captain of Manchester City Football Club, um, and you know I I'll always say you know I in the time I played um, there's not. There wasn't a training session or a or a game where I ever let the club down, because I gave everything. And all through my career at Plymouth, Blackburn, Blackpool, there's never there was never a training session or a game where I wasn't one hundred percent at it. I might have not had a greatest of games, but my intensity and that was there every time I trained and played. And um, and I and I think you know looking at it now from a manager's point of view, that's all I ask of my players is that their attention to the training and the game is there, and they give me everything every time they go out, and and I did that, and you know, and um, and I think the, the the fans appreciated that and warmed to it. What made you change the captain, Joe? Was it just that he was so obviously the leader anyway that it, it felt? <laughs> well, it, it, yes, first and foremost, Andy was a leader. Um, Jamie was was having problems with himself, you know, with his with his weight control and his weight anyway. His form was suffering a little bit. So it, it was twofold, really. Take the pressure off Jamie, but mostly to, to give the natural leader his head to be the natural leader, you know. And it's nice when it works. You know, we, we had all kinds of problems. We had one pitch, a plat lane, which was never good when you see the training facilities now, which are space age. It's it's awesome what what city have now for but we had one pitch of Platt Lane which was community based community run, and I do actually remember a, a slightly um, well it's funny now a situation on a Friday morning a rather shy groundsman came up to me and asked me please can we not train on the pitch today you know because I've been asked to prepare it for a Sunday league final and. Uh, we, I was looking around for a school somewhere to train, but that was the season before, that was early days, but it, it just tells you of, of the place that Man City were in at the time. And that's why, you know, the, you, you were saying before about, you know, where did it come from, the, Andy's lifestyle and at the time. When, when you're a young player and you're absolutely buzzing after training and all that, you can, and, and if you're not careful, it, it's, it's not hard to go the wrong way, you know, when he's still full of it, you know, and let's go, I want to be with the lads. And this lot had a great community spirit amongst themselves. You know, they, much was made later on to, to hurt me with that it was a drink culture. It wasn't a drink culture, but there was a camaraderie which was quite exceptional. So we, we end up in the, in the playoff semi-finals against uh, Wigan. The game at Main Road, I remember the atmosphere was one of the best I've experienced uh, uh, as a City fan throughout all the time I've been going. Do you, do you remember that game in particular, Andy? 
What, what was the, does that help? I mean, as a player, you are you aware of that kind of thing, or are you just sort of focused on the game? I think you're focused on the game. You're not you're not aware of any difference from the previous week. It's not like wow, they're different today because we'd had a period where the the, the ground was sold out. Um, what stands out for me in my memory is still the after the game. You know, the celebrations on the pitch and yeah. um, and the whole stand was full, and we were up <laughs> in the you know kind of director's box waving the phantom. We're off to Wembley, um, and you know, it was just it's staggering when you think of what the club had achieved over the years and there they were celebrating the way they did that the fact we're going to Wembley we still got to go there and win the game um, but it was a, it was a euphoric evening and um, and again it was part of the, the momentum that, we, that I spoke about going forward you know it was just a building going towards the Wembley and the obvious easy win that we were expecting. <laughs> so what was the feeling ahead of that final? Were they, they wasn't, I'm presuming there wasn't any complacency within the squad. I, I mean, that was, I'm, I'm assuming, a reference to the fans perhaps and, and the outside media, but within the squad, I'm presuming you were all very much focused on making sure you got got the result you needed in that final. And it was a, it was a very, very strange game, wasn't it, with uh, Gillingham scoring two late goals themselves. I mean, what what was that like to be involved? I mean, you were off the pitch at that time, if I remember rightly, weren't you? You'd, you'd come yeah. off. Yeah, I mean, I'd um, I'd had an injection um, before the game yeah. um, to play, and then I had um, fluid drained off my knee at half time, and um, you know, and the, and the manager had obviously seen that I'm not I'm not moving rightly, so I was taken off, and um, and I think Tony Vaughan went into centre half, and um, you know. The two goals that went in, you know, you think, you think that's it, you know. But you know, the history speaks differently, and and um, and it's it was almost as if when you look where the club is now, and you look at that time, it was like as if the the big fella in the sky has said, right, two nil down, that's enough. They've had enough now. They've had years of this now. Let's turn things around, and um, because you know, you could never in your most imaginable dreams think that we could do what we did and the way it and the way it was and I'll take the opportunity again because Kev reminds me every time I see him can you just make sure that everybody knows I scored the first goal yeah. <laughs> and I didn't miss my penalty yeah. so and what a character Kevin Horan absolutely I was just going to say that we, we haven't mentioned him Andy but what a funny man yeah. I took him to Ipswich later on and he he did a great job for me there as well a yard short of being the the real top class, wonderful left foot. Yeah, he had real quality in that left foot, didn't he? He he was a terrific and and he real quality as a person. You know, he yeah. he he was part of it. He was a comedian, part of the uh, the, the whole dressing room culture that we had at the time. Mm. And don't forget, you know, on our run in, we'd won at Gillingham, one of our best team performances. Not an exuberant performance, but we'd won at Gillingham, which was a hard place to go to. You know, so. We'd, we'd gone in as, as people's favourites, but um, as Andy said, you know, we never seem to do things easily. At 2-0 down, are you thinking, it's done? I actually famously or infamously said to Willie, it looks like Scunny next year, because they'd won the promotion the previous day, and I thought we were going to be playing them. Um, and then, of course, that, that it, it's like yesterday in my mind. The, the, the first goal's gone in by Kevin, and then... As we're going back to the halfway line, the a couple of minutes later, the the fourth official has put up five minutes on the board, and it's amazing. You know, it lifted everybody. Aces, aces, rubber me. Hey, look, it's five minutes. You know, we've we've got a great chance here. You know, and of course, Dickie's goal, and Dickie again. You know, since the day 
I arrived at it. Dickie always had a smile on his face, always trained like a beast. You know, he was a great little professional. Um, and he, he was a wild striker of the ball. And and I kept saying to him, make sure you just hit the target. You know, you don't have to break the net every time you go for goal. And I, I've got to say, I took great pleasure in watching him side foot the ball, on which he did. It took a slight deflection against his best man. There were so many... So many strange things going on at Wembley that day. And then Nicky Weaver, of course. Now, Nicky Weaver, I, I believe, but for knee problems, would have been an England keeper because he came in his first season, was awesome. And his second season, he, he broke again the clean sheet record for Man City, two years running as an 18, 19-year-old. But the one thing he wasn't great at was saving penalties. And we've been practising on, on Main Road and I don't think he got near one, are we? I think Andy hit it on the head when he said that, you know. I think the big fella decided they've had enough. <laughs> yeah. How did you celebrate? How did the squad celebrate that result? For, for me personally, obviously, you know, the, the euphoria of a game like that in the change room afterwards, you know, I, I can't remember too much really because everything's gone up, everybody's celebrating and, you know, it's a very emotional time. You know, there's hugging and there's there's people in around there and, you know, it's a, 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 a it's only football for me in my life has ever been able to generate, you know, nothing else, you know, because you have your birth of your children and your marriage and everything, but football's the only thing in that situation that we can recreate something so amazing as that happens and and you know and i think that's probably the the magic of sport in itself that that the feeling in that change room afterwards you could never act that or recreate it it has to be real and everybody in that changing room was just it was just breathtaking and of course i wasn't drinking um and there's champagne going everywhere and you know and it just it was a it was good for me because i often say i speak to les chapman now and i'll say when i what when I, the game had finished, everybody had left and it, me and Les, I stayed right to the end in the changing room and I just had a feeling inside of me. It was kind of like, it was a reward in a way for me making them sacrifices and it was a reward for, you know, for the club as well. And um, I just felt really full and, and um, it was just an incredible experience because, you know, then we, we went from there and, and then we had the coach back up the, the motorway and the fans are driving up alongside and it, it was just magical. Stopped off, got back to Old Chingham and I think all the lads went off out and um, and celebrated, which was rightly so, because it was deserved, you know. The coach back home was actually relatively quiet. I think that the feeling was more of relief than yeah. anything. Yeah. You know, the obvious euphoria in the dressing room, party hats and streamers, but I don't know how well they celebrated when they got back. Knowing certain individuals, I can only guess. But uh, Two or three days celebrations. Yeah, well, I, I did know at the time. But uh, at, the, at the same time, they'd done it. You know, the season's over. By we, we were talking about next season, I think, within a week. You know, we knew there was a lot to do. So before we move on to that season, I just we were talking before we started recording. <coughs> City are given a lot of credit for the size of the, the attendances during that Division 2 campaign. Yeah. I remember thinking at the time, I'm not sure how many of the people who were coming to Main Road at this point will be coming back. I think there was a core of 15,000, 20,000 maybe. Mm. But I think crowds would have diminished and I think match day revenue would perhaps have diminished because, as you alluded to earlier, I think they'd pretty much had enough by that stage. Do you feel if, if Dickoff hadn't have scored that goal and City hadn't gone up, um, a, crowds would have diminished, or even B, City may have sort of found financial ruin and, and perhaps not even been in existence. It's, it's totally imponderable, really, because we, we, we don't know. It's something you will never know. 
um, trying to judge the reaction of so many thousands of people is hard. I think that City have always had great fans. I, I, I put them up there with the best for the simple reason they tolerated those two seasons of relegation, you know, as well as any. I know that if either of the Liverpool clubs had have gone down two, two, two divisions in two seasons, I think there might have been deaths, you know, but they wouldn't have taken it that well. But I think the City fans, it, okay, at time it was, um, it, it was what would you call, it was black humour, you know, we're not really here, and you know you'd hear the occasion. It got a bit nasty one night at York City, you know. I, I remember that as being a particular low with the crowd and the relationship with the players. When the crowd didn't particularly want to see the players, they they were too angry for that, and I can understand that. So, but. The original question, it's impossible to tell. Mm. It really is. Now, I remember the start of the following season. Every City fan I spoke to said the same thing. They were happy to consolidate for this year in mid-table and then try and make a promotion push the following year. That was kind of the generally accepted view of the fans. Mm. Were you thinking about promotion? Absolutely. We, we had a, a board meeting at a golf club in Wilmslow pre-season and obviously talking about the previous season, but more about what was going to happen. And, um, and I think somebody asked me, what, what are your expectancies this season? I said, I fully expect us to make the playoffs at least. And one or two looked at me as if I was an alien. But, you know, I think that your opinion of our, our, our status that season was probably well-founded. And, you know, we still looked a long way short. The... Dare I say, I, I think the most important thing in management is recruitment. And Mark Kennedy came in and gave us a whole different dimension with Danny Granville on the left. And that gave us a new side and a more attacking side, you know, added to what we had in the team already. And I think the players that were already there upped their game as well. Kennedy was real, brought real quality, didn't he? Was he somebody you, you'd, as, as soon as the promotion was confirmed, was he somebody you'd identified as, you know, to bring that balance to the left? Well, I'd actually tried to buy a lad from Oxford, Joey Beecham, at one stage. He was a very good player. He always played well against City as well. Well, he, he did, and I tried to buy him after that, and uh, I, from what I can gather, he turned us down because we were too far from the dog stadium. But, I mean... <laughs> No, you think I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I knew Mark Kennedy and Liverpool and I knew the problems he was having at Liverpool as well. You know, he was living the life. He was a young kid who'd been at Millwall, paid a record £2 million for him, Liverpool, and it had all gone to his head a, a little bit. Like Andy, a young kid thrown into an adrenaline-filled situation and, you know, you, you can't believe it. You're living the life. You're with these people. You, and then one of them says, well, come and have a drink with us at lunchtime. And Mark had got pulled into that a little bit, you know. So he was ready for change and he was ready for the challenge. And, uh, you know, he, he certainly... Yeah, he, did, he, he was a big, big win for us, Mark Kennedy. Wonderful, wonderful left foot. Deceptive pace and a good type. I knew he was a good type. And his... Um link up we go to there was so many goals that season it felt to me where it was a Kennedy ball into the box and, and Goater would get on the end of it um, where, when City came back for the start of the season Andy what, what, what was the feeling like amongst the players were, were they thinking the same as Joe we can make a push or were you just sort of 
riding the momentum from the previous season and seeing where it took you? I can't say that um, I thought you know we could, we could go again. Um, it wasn't a thought. My 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 thought was to get into pre-season and you know you just take one game at a time. You get as fit as you can and, and see where where you go. You hope you get off to a good start. And um, the players that came in bought straight into the 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 changing room that we had. Um, I was still skipper um, and. You know, we again. You know, these are good. These are good characters that were brought in, and um, and they they embraced that kind of. Honestly, I, I can't tell you. I could tell you some incredible stories about the the Mickey taking and the ribbing that we used to do to each other, and and you know was right on the borderline of. You know, it was just, it was like that every single training session we were at it, and the, the 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 togetherness was fantastic, and it and it built again the momentum. You know, you were just talking a minute ago about. Um, you know, if we hadn't gone up, you know, when you look at Forest and Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday now, and you think when you actually get trapped in that, um, how difficult it could have been. You know, it's all way from ifs and buts, but I'm sure Weaver wouldn't have stayed. I'm sure our best players would have probably gone. And them young lads, your Gary Masons and all that, them would have had to play a pivotal part the following season. But, you know, because of the um, promotion, it allowed us to bring in better quality players and um, of Mark's quality and um, and momentum just kept going and some of the results that came you know were were surreal I think we lost the first game Wolves lost at Wolves then drew drew at Fulham they drew at Fulham and did we play Blackburn after that uh, Sheffield United then Blackburn yeah. so Sheffield United was a big win six yeah. nil and then we got to Bolton Wanderers and Mark I think that. Mark scored the only goal of the game and he was yeah, absolutely yeah, brilliant. 30 yarder, wasn't it? Yeah. Top corner. We went down to Birmingham in a midweek game and I think we, I, play, I remember playing with Richard Jobson at the time and I think we beat them 2 0. And it was just like, we've got a bit of momentum going again here now. You know, when every team we're playing against, we're, we're an even match with them. It's not like we're, we're sat in and we're having to defend and catch them on the break. We were an even match for every team we played and, and we went on a great run. And, um, you know, for me personally, I, my knee went against Port Vale. Um, that. And that was, I think, 16 games into the season. And I, I never got back, really. You know, I never really recovered. I played a couple of games here and there the following season, the Premier League. But, I, you know, the, the knee was just really gone. And I was just trying to fight it on then. And again, it's it's tough luck. You know, it's one of them things. Um, because there was a period after about maybe six to eight weeks where I was at the fittest I'd ever been. I was, I was, my body fat was probably around 10, 11, 12%, which it had never been. I was just, my head was clear and I was playing the best football of my career. And, and I remember Scotland scouts come to a game to watch. And I'd had that at probably 23 when I was at Huddersfield and it was for a B international. And I, I, I never got picked. I think they went with them, maybe Malky Mackay at the time got the call instead of me. But there I was again at um, sort of 29 and they were watching me and, and he went, so, you know, you can get some tissues and dry my eyes. <laughs> but it's one of them things. And, you know, and I never really had the opportunity to, to carry on because, you know, we the club had moved on. I think we brought Spencer Pryor in and then Steve Howie and Richard Dunn. And, you know, these were all top players. And I, I only played a bit part, really, in the odd game here and there. It's incredible, really, given the number of games you played for the club, which was probably around 50, the impact that he had and the way he still probably, remembered. There was probably about 46 men of the matches in there. <laughs> but probably, listen, it, it was an affinity. I used the word before, a marriage, straight away. It was what City love, you know, the way that the Kipraks used to love Mike Doyle. You know, um, with all due respect, Mike wasn't as good a technician as Andy. Um, but, you know, the fact that he was there and 
fisting it everywhere and banging their chest and that. And they love that. They, they, they love someone who's one of them. And, and it was, it was a marriage. So I'm looking at the results here. And uh, after your injury, City go on a really good run of winning games and there was a real momentum. And, and Gota's goals, you're looking at the results down here and Gota's scoring pretty much every game, isn't he? When you arrived, Joe, at the back end of that relegation season, he, his stock with the fans wasn't particularly high. And this is kind of airbrushed out of the Sean Gota story a little bit, I find. Yeah. I remember specifically... The fans didn't fancy him. I was getting letters about him. You know, how can you sign him to play for our club? You know, we've, you know, they, they, we we're used to top class strikers, and and he'll never be a striker. And then I think he got something like three and six, or at the end of that season we went down. You know, he certainly scored a few goals. Yeah, he did. And and then the next season, you know, well, I'm not sure he's good enough for this division. And then he scored the goals that got us up. And then, well, you'll have to replace him now. We're in the championship. And then, of course, he, he too now is a legend on the base of scoring against Man United, but also scoring goals for the club in the in the Premier Division. And a lovely guy, by the way. Yeah, absolutely. I know I love, you won't find a bad word for, for Sean Ghost for Man City. I've not got it in front of me, but I think he scored over 30 goals in that uh, promotion from the old Division 1 into the Premier League. I mean, yeah. that's a... It's an incredibly strong number, isn't it? I mean, what, what, what do you think made him such a good goal scorer, Andy? Um, well, I mean, it, it, he scored many kinds of goals. You know, he was good in the air. Um, and as it was just been said, he, he, he never uh, was a great striker with the ball, but he, he seemed to be able to find the angles and, you know, he got across defenders and things would hit him in the right areas. But he also had clever movement um, and it was something that, until I actually marked him in training, that you didn't really see. He was very good at actually looking at the player in the eye and then pulling and spinning and then checking back his runs. Very clever with his movements. And he had a kind of almost like a, you know, an extra two-footed his leg at certain times where he seemed to be able to stretch for things and it would hit the last toe and um, and find the bottom corner, you know, and um, and that's a gift in itself to be able to keep getting into them right areas and 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 like I say, he was uh, and he was also very brave, which is something that, you know, as, as I'm thinking back over the team and and the players, you know, as a manager now, and I think about Kevin Horlock, incredible courage, you know, would never ever back out of fifty fifty. Jared uh, Vikens, Paul Dickoff, they're all brave footballers. You know, they were all strong, and I think. Just something just dropped in my head there. You know, to be a footballer, you also have to be brave at that level, and and they all had proper courage and were brave, and um, and that you know that reflects in you know what what they did in their careers, um, and Sean was you know he'd never pull out of anything. If he got hurt, he got hurt, but you know he was he was always um, very 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 alive in the box. And I think again, City finished that Division One season very strongly. Twelve, I think it was twelve unbeaten. Um, I remember the game against Birmingham at home, the penultimate game, yeah. and uh, Robert Taylor scored, yeah. and there was pitch invasion. I remember yeah. being very uncomfortable about that at the Me time too. because it wasn't done. It wasn't done. Yeah, and Ipswich had to go and win, I think, and and they would have gone up directly, I think. And then it got to the last game, where by if we won at Blackburn, we knew we were up. Mm. But the but that yeah, I totally agree with you that. A pitch invasion, and it was it was celebrating as if we were up. And um, I mean, Robert Taylor was being carried on the shoulders of the fans, if I remember rightly. <laughs> I mean, it, it all fell slightly <laughs> over the top. But then we talk about um, 
how sort of incredible the Gillingham game was. That Blackburn game on the final day of the season is just... I mean, I remember I saw Graham Souness in the, the summer that followed and he, he just could not believe that Blackburn had lost that game. They did the woodwork three times first half and they'd scored one. Janssen had lashed one in. And I remember coming in, it, it wasn't a time for, for ranting and raving. We sat down and I said, listen, you know, that ain't us. You know, we ain't played yet. I said, but there's one golden rule, we always score. So we went out second half and then straight from the kickoff, near enough, they hit the post and it bounced into Weaver's hands, into Nicky's hands. And I turned around, I looked at Ace and I said, there's something happening here, Ace. And then all of a sudden, we're 3-1 up. We're 3-1 up and and then 4-1. And then, of course, it was party time. I mean, we, oh, I've, I've got a photo in my office Mark Kennedy running down the touchline and throwing himself as after you. That's the iconic picture of that day for me, whenever I think back to that. And I think there's a lot of City fans who still say that's the best away day they've had in the last sort of 20 years. Well, they were everywhere. They were on the hills, they were up trees, they were sat on the stands, you know. God knows what health and safety would have thought. They were everywhere that day. And my friend, my great friend, Tom Finn, who was secretary at the time, a great administrator, and um, I bumped into him on holiday later on that summer, and uh, I actually asked him, this is true, if I could buy the woodwork of the, the goals from Ewood Park. And he told me to go away in slow jerky movements. I didn't want to leave as a player and I didn't want to leave as a manager. Look back and no regrets. Fantastic times. There we have it. A fascinating insight there from Joe and Andy. If you like what you heard today, make sure you subscribe wherever it is you do your listening because we've got plenty more for you. I've been speaking to former City star Paul Lake and his wife Joanne, the man who scored the greatest ever League Cup final goal, Dennis Stewart, one of the club's best ever players and subsequent chairman, Francis Lee, and a man central to our modern success, Brian Marwood. They're all available now, wherever it is you do your podcast listening. You can find more content like this on mancity.com or download the official Man City app. Thanks for taking the time to listen and hopefully I will see you soon.